As a church, every week we teach through the Bible. And for the past few weeks, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Galatians in the New Testament. And after the first couple of chapters, the, the letter kind of changes gear a bit. And um, we're going to start looking at that from next week. But today we thought it would be a great opportunity, almost as a kind of overview of the sort of things that Paul's been talking about, to hear from Jason about what God's done in his life. So for the first two chapters of Galatians, uh, Paul is talking about the gospel. And he's saying that the gospel, the message of God's rescue in Jesus, is quite literally a message from God. It's not to be tampered with. It's not to be messed with. And the reason for that is because it is the only hope and help we've got as a human race uh, of someone coming to rescue us. Because in the gospel, Jesus has come. And the message is that we can be saved not because of our good deeds, not because of our freedom of expression. We can be saved by putting our trust in Jesus. And actually, when a person puts their trust in Jesus, they become part of the people of God. They become accepted by God. They have their sins forgiven. They have their life turned around. And for many of us in the room, we became Christians when we were quite young. And sometimes you meet Christians and they say, oh, my testimony is not very good because I've just been a Christian since I was six or seven or, and I've never really known anything else. And what they often mean is, ah, I was never addicted to drugs and I haven't murdered anybody and I haven't spent any time in jail. My testimony is rubbish. As if that's what constitutes a good testimony. No, Paul says, whenever someone turns from living for self and puts their hope in Jesus, their life has a radical reorientation and actually, you become a new creature. You become brand new. That for you to become a Christian, whether you became a Christian age six or age 60 after a whole life of experience, for you to become a Christian required the Son of God to be murdered and killed on a cross and put into a grave and raised to new life. That it required God to go to the greatest lengths possible to rescue you. So whoever you are, whatever your story is, you have a fantastic story of rescue. However, when talking to Jason this week, I thought, you know, his story of how God got hold of him is vivid enough and helpful enough that for actually us to interview Jason and hear a bit more about his story and what God's done in his life is going to be useful just for adding some flesh to the bones of what Paul's been talking about. The message of the gospel is salvation for all of us who are far from God. And uh, we're going to welcome Jason and Amy now as he comes to share with us some of what God's done in his life. So, it is a, it is a nerve-wracking ordeal if you're not used to doing this. So let's make them feel right at home and give them a big round of applause. They come to sit down. Let's welcome Jason and Amy. Okay. Yeah. So me and Jason are just going to have a little chat. So you can all listen in to our little chat. Um, so yeah, thanks for yeah sharing your story with us today. No and as Jez already talked about, we're in Galatians. Paul's been talking at the beginning about kind of where he came from, mm -hmm. the kind of life that he led. Um, so why don't you just start, um, yeah, where are you from? Where were you born? That kind of stuff. And a little okay. bit about your backstory, um, just as a yeah, young boy growing up. What was life like for you? Where did you find yourself growing up? Okay. Um, so, yeah, if, if you don't know me by now, I'm Jason. Hi. <laughs> um, I was born in South Africa um, in 82. Uh, I grew up on a farm. Um, I was born in Johannesburg, but grew up on a farm south, southwest of Johannesburg, about 100 miles um, south, southwest. Um, it was the family inheritance, so it was, uh, it was a working farm, um, but it was also a game reserve. And uh, during my lifetime, we converted it uh, into a working guest house game reserve. Um, so that's pretty much where I grew up. I'm one of four brothers um, and one of a twin. 
identical twins. Are they all twins. as tall as you? Is everyone the same? Well, it's ironic. The older was the tallest, and then as we grew up, we outgrew each other opposite. <laughs> so the youngest is the tallest, the middle is shorter, and the oldest is the shortest. But he's still 6'4", so he's, he's pretty tall. Um, so yes, one of four boys, one of an identical twin. Um, and yeah, we grew up basically on the farm. I w we moved there when I was four. So that's more or less all that I knew. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we, we were schooled in the local town. The local town was quite a, quite a hillbilly setup, um, by all accounts. There was, um, obviously it was apartheid, South Africa. So uh, there was a lot of division in the country. There was a division, not only racial division, but there was also a division in the language um, front. So if you were English and you lived in an Afrikaans community, uh, that created a bit of problems. Um, which was certainly the case where I grew up. The town was very Afrikaans. Um, so, yeah, but it, it was very remote. It was very uh, isolated, um, which I loved. It was, it was a farming community. Um, so we didn't really fit in. But, um, yeah, we were schooled there for a couple of years, and then we were homeschooled after that uh, until I was about, oh, about 11 or 12 years old. Okay, and were you brought up in a Christian family? Yes, more or less, yes. Um, our home had a, had, a, had a Christian framework. There were Christian morals. Uh, my mom and dad would identify as Christian, although we never, ever went to church. Uh, I remember as a child, we went to church once, and I, I think it was a funeral, if I remember correctly. Uh, so, yes, it was a loose moral framework. It was um, very legalistic. Uh, so we were looking at that in our life groups this week, what is legalism? But our home belief system was very legalistic. There was a lot of um, rules. Um, the idea of a personal, inter, interpersonal, relational God was uh, distant and a bit foreign, yeah. So we had a, basically a rule set that we followed, which was Christian in origin. Um, I'm just going to grab my water, sorry. Whenever I speak publicly, I get dry mouth syndrome. Um, so, yeah, we grew up basically with the Christian ethos in the house, Christian morals. And if you asked us, we would have said, yes, we're Christians. Um, but we didn't live that way. So it was, it was confusing. And there was a lot of odd beliefs in the house as well, um, which came out as I got older. I realized that they were really uh, odd. Um, for one thing, my dad believes he's a prophet in the vein of Ezekiel, Isaiah, that kind of thing. So it was, it was very strange at one point. But... Um, yeah, I mean, my mom bought us all Bibles for ourselves uh, when we were youngsters. I think she was, it was a very wise thing to do because we were just able to discover God on our own, essentially. My dad was never around when we were youngsters. Um, I remember as a child, my dad was just this figure in the background. He was just working all the time or uh, he was busy with other things. I only really met my dad when I was about 13, 12 or 13, or at least it felt that way. Uh, I do have memories of him as a youngster, but... Um, he was just away, which I think was helpful. And so we read our Bibles uh, all the time. If we had, and without restraint, if I opened it at Revelation, that's what I read, seven-year-old boy. If I opened it at Ezekiel, or, I loved the Proverbs um, because they were practical. I could apply them. They made sense to my seven, eight-year-old mind. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm more or less, uh, we all formed our own belief of God from a young age, uh, so I would say I've always, had a, I've always had a belief in the God of the Bible, but um, with distortions. Yeah, so what was your kind of view of God like, I guess, growing up kind of trying to discover it to yourself, but also the influences of the home and um, perhaps some 
yeah, different understanding of God? Was there a, did you kind of have a view of God which was wrong to what you know now? Yeah, that's a good question. I did. I had a very distorted view of God because, because of the legalistic framework in the house. I, I, I grew up, I mean, I think as a young boy, I had a wholesome view of God. But the older and older I got, the more that I was informed by the household situation, especially by looking at my dad and seeing the way that he was living. Um, so I did. I, um, I grew to have a very strange view of God. Essentially, I had a view of God as, as a judge. I didn't have the father-son relationship uh, displayed for me, and therefore I didn't model that, and it didn't unpack for me. So, yes, I had a very legalistic view of God. God was sort of the, the, the sagely old man in the sky with the gavel was waiting to bring it down and I did something wrong. That, that, that was more or less my opinion of God. Um, but that, it was more wholesome as I was younger, but then when I became a teenager, I think that's certainly what it, it became. Yeah. And it was massively influenced by my father. I think that's the biblical model, looking back now, the biblical model is that fathers model a relationship akin to that relationship to their sons and their daughters. And I mean, I, I don't think we really had that because my dad wasn't around or he was, he was absent. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, then I guess growing into your teenage years, mm-hmm. what was that like for you growing up? What was it? Yeah, what were the kind of things that you kind of went through in those those years? So, um, as a teenager, we started going back to school, which was a huge change. We'd always been homeschooled um, because of that that language barrier. I said we couldn't school in the local school, so going back to school was quite a shock. But it, it was also good because it gave us um, some perspective on the outside world. But basically what happened was we, my folks couldn't afford to send us beyond the age of 15. In South Africa at that time, you had to pay for schooling. There was no state-funded schooling, uh, not that we uh, qualified for. So at the age of 14, just turned 15, we went to work on the farm. And that, that was our full-time job. We worked you know, six days a week, 12 hours a day, um, really, really hard on the farm, trying to bring in a crop and convert the place into a game reserve. And uh, when I turned 17... Or just turned 17, the house was the farm was auctioned off um, by the bank. The bank foreclosed. My dad had taken out mortgages to finance the conversion from a farm into a guest house, and the bank foreclosed on the house, and it was basically auctioned off at a at a, a public but very carefully controlled auction, and we walked away with very very little money. Um, so that was October 99, January 2000. We left the farm. Um, I must have been 18, yeah, I was 18 at the time. Uh, yeah, and we basically just left to start a new life. We, we had a couple of rickety old vehicles, and I mean, us boys had only ever known the farm, so we, we basically left for New Frontier. Uh, so yeah, it's just pretty, it was pretty scary, but um, we had nothing else. We couldn't do anything else, so yeah. Where did you end up? Yeah, uh, <laughs> so we hit the road. We didn't know where we were going, but my dad... I think had a plan, and we ended up in the Lowfeld Bushveld area of South Africa, which is near the Kruger Park area. Beautiful area, um, stunning Bushveld. And we rented a house there, um, and we basically started again. My dad sank into a depression. Um, I think, you know, the farm was, was, the, was the inheritance. It was the family inheritance, and it had been built by his great-great-grandfather. And um, at the time that we lived in, it was the largest privately owned house in South Africa. It had 54 rooms in the main house. It was quite a stately manner and um, I think losing that the reality of dawning on him really crushed my dad so he he sank into a major depression my mom essentially became his full-time carer Um, and we were left to basically find work we had no skills we had no qualifications certainly um, even if we did have skills and so we ended up there was a local town nearby uh, 
which was amazing for us because there was restaurants, nightclubs, girls, cars, <laughs> alcohol, all the stuff that suddenly was flooded in. And so we, we went to the local restaurants and got work as waiters, and that's what we did. All four of us began waitering. And we'd keep maybe a little bit of money. We'd squirrel away, and the rest we'd take home to pay rent. Um, but working away from my father for the first time, working outside of the home was, for the first time was, was wonderful. It was a freedom that we hadn't known before. Um, but with that freedom came exposure to all sorts of things we hadn't been controlled to. Like I said, girls, girls were a foreign idea to me. Um, clubs, uh, we all got into the nightclub scene. Uh, we all started uh, partying to excess, drinking to excess. Um, so yeah, it was an unhealthy uh, crash, essentially. Yeah, We were all bush babies, and suddenly there we were in the big city with money to burn, and it was unhealthy. Yeah. Okay, and how did you find that life developed from there? Um, yeah, obviously entering that whole, like you say, a whole new world, a whole new eyes open, like, whoa, like, yeah. all this stuff. How did you find that, and how did that impact on you? Um, it, was, it was cool, <laughs> uh, but... It was unhealthy because we had no schooling in how to handle that sort of thing. So we, I think at first we, we sort of eased into it, but uh, before long, my brother and I were entering dance competitions in the local clubs, and we found we had a knack for going nuts on the dance floor. Can you show us a move now? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I usually dance with my shirt off. Oh, somewhere. okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not. Not for now. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so, the, I mean, the dance competitions weren't as organized as you may be imagining. It was a bit... Like the Macarena or anything. It was no. Something. No, it was nothing like that. It was, it was hectic. And you'd be in the middle of the dance floor with your shirt off and people would pour vodka on you and lick it off. It was that kind of scene. So, yeah, you don't want it here. Believe me, you don't want it in here. Uh, so, we, we basically got involved in that. And as we, as we got recognition, it was awesome, you know, being the center of attention of 250 people in a club was great. So, we, we lapped it up. Um, but that led to, uh, you know, um, my brothers essentially moving out. My older brothers, they wanted their own lives. I mean, my oldest brother was pushing 21, 22 at that stage, so he, he wanted his own life. Um, he met a girl. He moved in with her. My older brother, Josh, moved out. And so it was just the two of us at home, uh, still working sort of 14 shifts a week at the restaurant, which is the most you could work, seven, you know, seven days, two shifts a day. Uh, and bringing that money home. But whenever we had a chance, we'd go out on the town. And, and the exposure was unhealthy, is the best way to say it. But, um, yeah, I think at that point it was, it was unhealthy, but it was controlled. We weren't going completely off the rails. Um, but when we were home alone, my dad began to get more and more uh, erratic, more and more violent. Um, I should probably say a bit about my dad. Uh, he, he was, his own childhood was horrific. He had, he had a terrible upbringing. I mean, I, I really can't compare but um, he allowed his childhood to inform his life. And I can't say what he's like today because we don't have much contact. But um, certainly then, um, he lived as a victim of his childhood. He allowed it to shape his whole outlook of his, of his life. And um, he was regularly violent. He carried a gun on his hip every day. Uh, he would frequently use it. Um, he, was, he would get drunk. He would break things around the house. We were hit with a rod if we were you know, dis disobedient, or we were hit with the fist sometimes. My mom was hit regularly. Uh, he would break things. He was emotionally, would berate us. He'd call us names. Um, he'd play us off against each other. So 
getting worse than that was bad. Uh, so when we were in Nelspruit and we were moving from place to place, not paying rent, getting kicked out of that place, getting kicked out of that place, um, he got worse. And uh, he used to, to the point where I remember one night he used to wander around the house with his revolver in his hand, you know, cocked and locked. And I mean, I know we fired the trigger down on that thing. I know how easy it could go off. And he would do that. He'd stab the dog in the nose with his knife and uh, he'd beat my mom. He'd break things. So it was getting really out of control. And we eventually moved to a, a house quite far out of town. And um, it was there that he really got nuts. And my mom decided enough is enough. And she came to us one night and, and said, she came to us at the restaurant the one day and just we had a secret meeting and she said, look, if, if I don't get away from him, he's going to kill me eventually. Um, and she said, can you, can you take me away? And Ash and I said, yes, we'll, we'll do that. So one night we smuggled her out of the house. We pushed the car about a mile away so that he wouldn't hear us starting the car. Um, and we drove her up to Joburg and we we've looked for relatives of hers from 30 years ago that we'd never met um, and seeing if anyone would take her in, offer her a place to stay. And eventually we found someone who would, but on the condition that she several ties with my dad, uh, which she said she would. And so we started a new life, basically, the three of us up in Johannesburg, um, having left my dad and my brothers back in Nelspruit. Um, so, yeah, basically we started again there. Um, Word reached me that my dad had gone completely nuts. He'd have basically had a nervous breakdown. My brothers were bearing the brunt of that because they were around. Uh, and so my brother, my twin brother and I sat down and I said, look, someone's got to go back and sort of stand in the gap. And I just said, okay, he'll stay because he'd found work in Joburg as a waiter. Um, and I said, well, I'll go back. So that's what I did. I got on a bus. I went back to Nelspruit. I got off the bus, I faced my dad, and I went to get drunk. I decided I was going to go and just drink away my problems. And uh, there was something very different about that time when I went to get drunk. It, was, um, it offered me an incredible escape. Um, my mind was able to forget all the pain of what was going on kind of washed away. And I realized at that point I really enjoyed being drunk. Um, it was a wonderful escape. It was relatively cheap. I mean, I tried, I tried everything to that point. I mean, I should be clear. I, I tried uh, marijuana to excess. It, it, marijuana didn't do anything for me. Um, I tried drugs of any kind, anything you could insert or swallow. I was never brave enough to get hooked on injecting anything, which is great. I injected once into my tear gland, but that was it. I didn't like the experience. So I basically attached myself to alcohol. And after getting back to Nelspruit, um, there was a girl that I wanted to pursue as well. So things developed there. We fell in love. We moved in together. Um, I don't know if we fell in love at that point, but we certainly fell into each other's arms. I think we grew to love one another more and more, which we still are today. Um, it's my wife, Mary, now. So it's, uh, uh, she's not another girl. Um, so, yeah, basically the drinking got worse and worse. Um, we were both of us in quite a broken place. My dad essentially latched on to me. And I became his confidant of sorts. And he would find me at the restaurant. I went back to work at the restaurant. He would come and find me so that I could buy him a meal, give him money. And then at the end of the night, he would basically just talk at me for hours and hours and hours. My shift used to end about 11. And he would sit me on the ground talking literally till daybreak sometimes. Um, and telling me things that no son should ever have to hear. It was stuff that 
to this mind. Uh, to this day, I wish I could get out of my mind. But uh, it was horrific, and it, it informed my drinking more because the minute I was finished talking to my dad, I could not wait to get drunk. It's like I just want to escape. So I carried on drinking, and it got worse and worse. And with my dad's injection there, uh, I just got, went completely off the rails. I mean, I would start a drinking session with a bottle of hardtack and then go into whatever was normal for everyone else. Um, so I was completely out of control. Uh, and in the middle of that situation, I, I began to hear God speaking to me in, in certain ways. Um, so I would wake up in the morning and I would be shaking. I could not, I could not uh, function. And the first thing I'd have to do is find some alcohol somewhere. I had to get it in the fridge or get it wherever it was. Even if it was a half-drunk bottle somewhere, which was rare. But I would just down it and eventually the shaking would stop. Um, so that was the one thing. Um, the other thing was because of the way I was experimenting with drugs and alcohol at the same time, I began having these locked-in dreams where I would, I would wake up in the morning, mentally everything would switch on, but my body wouldn't respond. I couldn't move my muscles. I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't open my mouth. If I, if I was lying this way, that was it. I was there. I couldn't get my body to respond in any way. And I think at that point, I'd become determined to, to die yeah, uh, I think what was really going on was I, I had this intense anger towards God because, in my view, God was in control of everything and he was allowing all of this to happen. And because he wasn't rescuing us from that situation or bringing a relief to that situation, I blamed him for what was going on. So um, that anger became more and more intense to the point where I thought, well, I'm going to get back at God by dying a meaningless death. If I die a young meaningless death, that's somehow shaking my fist in God's face, which is ridiculous. But that was my outlook. I was, I just become angry with the God that I knew, which wasn't the God of the Bible, in all honesty. Um, but like I said, I, I felt God speaking to me, even though I was shaking my fist at him, so angry with him, God was speaking to me tenderly in various ways and with warnings. He was, he was showing me certain things to make me realize that what I was doing was going to get me what I wished. I was going to get an early death. What kind of things were they then? What so apart from the locked-in dreams and that, um, I started having these episodes at night where I would, we would go to bed together and I would get up in the middle of the night. Sometimes I wouldn't put anything on. Usually I'd just put on a pair of jeans and I had a 10-inch hunting knife. I used to take that in my hand and leave the flat. And I would come back at some point in the night and wake up the next morning and um, Mary would wake up and I'd be lying next to her covered in blood. And sometimes it was my own blood, sometimes it was someone else's, or I don't even know whose blood, maybe it was an animal, I don't know. But sometimes I had cuts and scratches, sometimes I didn't. Uh, I had no memory usually of what had happened the night before. Uh, and one morning I woke up after one of these episodes, and my right hand was cut all over um, from something I'd been holding. And my left arm, from the inside of my elbow here all the way down, and then across, I'd cut myself with whatever I was holding. It was like a piece of glass. And that was scary because I didn't remember doing that. I woke up with looking like I'd tried to commit suicide in the night. And it had failed. I mean, I bled a lot, but it hadn't, I hadn't gone right down. So that was really scary. And I just felt God saying, you really need to wake up. You know, the Bible says, arise, sleep, or wake up from the dead. That's really what I felt God was saying to me. You need to wake up. Uh, so that was one incident. Um, did you do anything at that point? Or did you just kind of squash that feeling down? I, of I totally did that. I squashed the feeling. I was like, well... This is getting a reaction. Yes, I'm getting back at God. I'll carry on going. It's incredible arrogance 
uh, from my, on my part and determination to be angry. I was so investing so much energy in that anger um, at that point that, yeah, it was, it was my lifestyle. So I did. I squashed it. I suppressed that and said, um, I don't care, essentially, yeah, and carried on. Um, so the next incident that happened was I, I mean, during one of those episodes, I'll just add this, during one of those episodes, I was spotted by a friend of my father's or a contact of my father's, an acquaintance, miles outside of town one night, two in the morning, almost naked, carrying a knife, covered in blood. And um, he was too scared to stop and pick me up. He didn't want to stop the car because he didn't know what state of mind I was in. I think he was right not to stop because I didn't know what state of mind I was in. Um, so it was really getting out of control. And one night, I had a car accident one night. Um, I was working at the restaurant. I had to run down the road to get something. And uh, I was driving my dad's car uh, at that point. And I basically went down to the garage, got some smokes, I think, and I was on my way back. It was raining really heavily, African rain, like tropical rain, proper rain. Uh, and the road was wet. It's no excuse. It was my fault. I went off the road. I hit the sandbank. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. Uh, the car came to basically a dead stop. I was going to go through the windshield, but the steering wheel hit me on the chest and s slid down and struck me underneath here and pulled all the soft tissue away underneath my uh, sternum. My head went through the windshield, broke the windshield out. And I kind of gathered myself, and I was like, wow, okay. Got out the car. My brother came out. He tended to the car, and I went back in to carry on working. And try to work my shift through to the end, but by the end of the night, I was feeling violently ill. Um, you know, I knew that it was, something was wrong. Um, but again, I squashed it. I was like, whatever, don't really care. Try to go to sleep that night. Um, I woke up at some point in the night uh, vomiting. Uh, I couldn't stand up. I was on all fours. I crawled all the way to a pharmacy, which is about a mile away, got some painkillers, went back to the flat, dozed on and off. Eventually, by the next day, when I, when I woke up, I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. I felt like it was, nothing was working, yeah, because your diaphragm obviously controls your lungs going up and down. Um, and my oldest brother said to me, enough's enough. You know, we're going to take you to hospital. And he took me down to the public hospital, and I couldn't tell you what scan they did, but I ended up in this sort of white room with a big arm going around me. And the doctor came in with the results. He put them up on the light box, and... He said, there's your lungs, there's your heart. And it turns out I'd torn away the pericardial sac at the top of the heart or behind the heart and the diaphragm. And there was this thick black band on there like a tire. And he said, that's blood. It's been pooling in your abdomen. You've been bleeding internally. And he said, for some reason, it stopped. And these kind of injuries don't stop bleeding on their own. You should either be dead or close to dead at this point. And again, he, he prodded and poked and said, well, there's... It stopped. It's as if you've had surgery. He gave me painkillers and sent me home. <laughs> so after all that, I mean, I know that it was, it was God who intervened at that point. Uh, did you recognize it at that point again, that that was God intervening in your life? I did. I think I did recognize it was God. I mean, I had to. I knew um, the doctor was kind of scratching his head, but I knew what was going on. But again, I squashed it. Um, it was quite rattling, though, I have to say, because the physical um, feelings that I felt of not being able to breathe, um, the doubled over was, was quite compelling. <laughs> but uh, it, it just shows the state of my heart at that point. I was so stubborn, I was so angry that I just carried on suppressing it. Um, so 
I carried on basically drinking and living the way that I was living. Uh, a couple of weeks later, I had a second car accident. Um, I'm a good driver today, okay? I see Jason on the roads, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so I had a second car accident, um, which was my fault. Um, there was another girl in the car with me. We hit a concrete reservoir at night on a dirt road. Uh, and even though the car was a write-off, and it was a car with no airbags, it was the days before you had impact bars and airbags and stuff, we were both fine. We didn't even have a scratch on us. So we walked away, but the car was in complete insurance-wise. was a write-off. And again, I knew God was speaking to me, but I just suppressed that entirely. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, things were getting really out of control. Um, one night, I decided I was going to go clubbing, and I went to the club. I, was, I used to carry a firearm at that point. I'd upgraded to a firearm. Uh, and I had, I had it either my leg or used to carry it in my crotch, depending on where I was going, because that dancers won't search your crotch, so to take it into a club. But that night I was dancing, so I left it at home, uh, which was by the grace of God. And I wasn't drinking. Uh, I'd gone there to party, so I was drugging, but nothing really serious. And I was on the dance floor. It was about 2 in the morning, and a fight broke out in the club. And it was between one guy uh, from the Agricultural College, I think, and a couple of guys from Johannesburg who were visiting. And it escalated pretty quickly. It was over a girl. One of them said, you were chatting up my girlfriend. And it ended up outside. They basically beat this guy pretty bad. So three of them and one of them. And he was off his legs drunk. He could hardly, you know, he could hardly stand. Um, so they beat him up. And while this was going on, the club, the music stopped. And everyone gathered outside. Everyone, South Africa is a bit barbaric. We like a good punch-up. So everyone gathered up around in a big arc around there was about 300 350 people by my estimation um and they were all watching this unfold and these guys walked off and we thought well that's it it's over but they went around the corner got their car came flying around the corner in their car and, and struck him as he was standing up he noticed everyone was watching and he started dancing and entertaining everyone even though he was bleeding and had a thick eye but they hit him with the car he went flying over the bonnet over the roof landed on his back on the floor and the minute he hit the deck this pool of blood started to appear underneath him. Now, I was, I was up and away. I was on the balcony, sort of watching the scene. And when I saw the blood, I just jumped over the balcony onto the forecourt. And I ran up to him. And he had, he had a wound on his leg just above his knee here. And it almost cut his leg off. He, his bone was crushed. The femoral artery had been severed. And it was, it was sticking out. I could see the jagged end of it. And it was just, the blood was just pooling. Literally, you could watch the pool growing like this. And it was, it was like black currant jam. It was this thick um, arterial blood. I had my shirt in my waistband at that point. So I took my shirt off. I tried to make a tourniquet on his leg. He was so drunk, he was trying to get up. Oh, I'm fine. Get off me. Get off me. Trying to stand up, pushing me. So eventually, I, I pinned him down, sat on him, and tried to work on his leg. And tied the tourniquet, and I was trying to get hold of the artery, but I couldn't hold it. It was the blood force was incredible, and it was so sticky, I just couldn't get a grip. Um, and at one point, I looked up at the crowd, and even though there were 300 plus people there, no one was doing anything. No one was finding an ambulance, no one was trying to help, getting ice, getting anything. No one was doing anything. They were just standing there watching this whole scene unfold. It was like it was like a gladiatorial competition or something that they were watching. Um, after about three minutes of this, his friends appeared uh, and they dragged him off and put him in a pickup truck. But by that point, he was already losing consciousness. He was white as a sheet. And in fact, I saw the same look on my wife when we had our first child. She almost bled to death having him. And it was the same look. 
she had, he had this pale, vacant look. Anyway, so I'm convinced he bled to death in the White Hospital. The hospital's a ways away. They were all drunk. They didn't know what they were doing. My tourniquet was doing nothing. Um, so off they went with him, and I was left there kneeling on the ground in this pool of blood, probably the size of this carpet, actually, underneath us. Um, thick, sticky, stinking of this. You know, blood is a smelted when there's a lot of it. My jeans had gone from pale, it was sort of your color jeans, they'd gone black with blood. I had it all over me, there's handprints where he'd been pushing me, it was in my hair where he'd been trying to pull me off. So I was absolutely soaked uh, in blood. And I looked up at everyone and everyone sort of looked at me like, what are you doing? And then slowly started going back to the club, music started up. And that just, that was it, that was the end of it. And um, I think in that moment, God spoke to me with a moment of clarity. It was really like a, God put this thing on my heart, like, you know, I, I want so much more for you than this. I felt God. It was, it was like an invitation. It wasn't critical. It wasn't harsh. It wasn't uh, judgmental. It was exactly the opposite of that. It was like a loving father saying, son, what are you doing? You know, it, was, it was amazing. And, I mean, within a minute, someone came out, started hosing down the blood, and everything went back to normal. So I got up and I just wandered off. I, I couldn't go home. I wandered off down the road. And um, I really think God changed something in my heart that night. It was no, no longer a case of being angry. It was no longer a case of fighting him. It was a change had taken place. God showed up. He really just put his hand in my heart and changed something. Because the desire for that stuff was just suddenly going. It was fading. And I've never been into a club socially since that night for my own purposes anyway. Um, anyway, it was about two weeks later, my girlfriend got a call. Her parents had come over um, to the UK. They'd found work uh, and they wanted to reunite the family, which is a miracle in itself, which is their story. But um, they said to Mary, come on, we'll bring you over. We can reunite. And Mary said, not without my vagrant boyfriend. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, she did. And they'd never met me. They'd never spoken to me on the phone. They were Christians. And they said, sure, we'll buy him a plane ticket. And they did. And a couple of months later, I was standing in England, uh, met them at the airport where they landed, and it was radically different. Uh, there was no exposure to drugs. There was no exposure to alcohol. Uh, it was absolutely my detox, um, which I didn't realize at the time. But um, I had cigarettes, <laughs> which was a transition thing. But uh, it, was, it was a miracle. I, I just had nowhere to go. I had no money. I landed with two pairs of jeans in my hand. That was literally what I came here with. And um, one day they were going to a church in Brighton, and they said, um, do you want to come along? And I said, yes. You know, they're giving you food and board. You can't very well say no, uh, which is a good strategy. <laughs> uh, so I went along with them and listened to the message. It was Joel Virgo preaching. And um, I think it was Joel. Maybe it was Terry. Anyway. Uh, at the end of the message, I responded to the altar call uh, or the call to come up and give your life to Christ, probably for like the eighth or ninth time in my life. But it was, it was really, it was different because I think I finally met the God of the Bible. Um, so that was the beginning. That was not the end. That was the beginning. Uh, but that's really how God brought me from death to life, I'd say. And when we look at, obviously, the story of, I guess, the, the bit that Jez was saying about, you know, we do nothing by, by our works. It's by, like faith in God like how have you experienced that like understanding of just God's love for you and 
um, yeah, it's nothing that you've done, but just mm. accepting that as a free gift. How have you kind of found that, like to accept that? Mm. I mean, freeing to the greatest degree because I was absolutely, I can say with Paul, I, there are sinners and I'm chief among them because I felt like that. I was absolutely fighting God. I, if, if anyone could say I contributed anything to God reaching down and saving me, I, I disagree completely. There's nothing I did to contribute. And so uh, I, when I look back, and even when I was preparing for this testimony, it just astounds me how much God has done for me uh, instead of me doing for God. I've done nothing. I've contributed nothing. And the, the doctrine of, of saved by grace has been the most freeing thing for me because God has done it all. And it was his, absolutely his mercy. He had no reason to show me mercy. I was shaking my fist in his face saying, I'll get back at you for this. And uh, God just overcame all of that with, with love. It was, it was the most powerful thing was his love rather than his judgment. And I always thought God's, the scary side of God was his judgment, which of course it is. But um, him winning me over was just by loving me. And that was unexpected for me. I was expecting it to be a fight, and it wasn't. It was a tender thing. Uh, and that was manifested in various ways through the people that took me in. Um, so many people showed me love. And then since that time, I've really, I've grown and grown in my, in my walk with God by you know, various ministries, sitting under really good teaching. And it's opened the Bible to me and the concept of the Bible, which basically teaches that we are, we are saved by grace alone, not of ourselves. It's a free gift of God. Uh, so yeah, life transforming. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much no, um, you. for sharing your story with us and just yeah leading us to that point of actually yeah reminder again that it is by great like by faith alone. Faith alone. <laughs> <What> <laughs> by faith alone, you're saying faith not alone. Yourself. Like yeah, we bring nothing to the table. We bring our own everything that we bring. That's not we great. We bring our filthy rags. Yeah. That's it. And Jesus transforms us. And just thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I know it's, it's a really you. brave thing to sit up here and, mm. and share your story. So why don't we just show our really appreciation to Jason. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And we're going to sit down. I'm just going to hand back over to Jez, who's just going to wrap up for us. Thank you, Jason, so much. Let me just finish our time this morning by reading to you what Paul says in Galatians 2. We did it last week. Paul says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a wonderful example of how the love of God transforms us. That just as that image that Jesus shared of sitting in that pool of blood, Jesus, when he was crucified, his blood was poured out for us. And it is as though for us, the, the blood was poured out for us to cleanse us, to bring us to a moment of clarity, to offer forgiveness and a message of restoration and hope. And in many ways, the reason we ask Jason to share that is because I think sometimes when you see something in an extreme form, it gives you hope for your form. It gives you hope for your life and your story to realize if he did it for him, maybe he can do it for me. If he rescued him and delivered him, maybe he can rescue me and deliver me. And that's exactly what Paul says uh, as a result of the cross of Christ. We're going to respond together just by singing a song and by taking communion together. There's two tables with bread and juice at the front and one table at the back in the corner with bread and juice. If you're a Christian, this is something that you can do as an act of response, as an act of remembering Jesus' death on the cross for you in your place for your sin to bring you back to God. Why don't you stand to your feet and uh, the band will lead us. And as they lead us, 
Let's go to the tables, take bread, take some juice, and let's give thanks to God. Also at the tables, we're going to put our offering buckets so that as part of our worship to God, we can bring our gifts, our offerings to God as an expression of gratitude to Him. Um, you'll notice on the table in front of you, we've got some new giving envelopes and some gift aid forms. If you're a, a taxpayer and you're happy for us to claim the money back, if you could fill out the form with any gift or, ta- or cash gift that you give, it's a helpful way of us um, adding to what God has given you to give to Him. But Father, we thank you so much for the story of rescue and salvation by grace alone through faith. And this, not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. We are so grateful for this gift and for that gift embodied in Jason's story this morning. Amen.